1: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at Mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoted for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at Mintmobile.com.
1: This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca/canadaland to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca/canadaland. to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. It's been too long, Jan Wong.
0: Yeah, a long time. Missed you dearly.
1: Likewise. Journalist, author, teacher, Jan Wong, today we're going to be talking about the Supreme Court. They have delivered a landmark ruling that will impact the rights of women, and I for one support it. I'm talking about Canada's, Canada's Supreme Court, Jan.
0: Yeah, not that US, oh my God. We won't talk about them, thank goodness.
1: Also today, the National Post calls for an end to the verbal abuse of media workers. Meanwhile, National Post columnist Rex Murphy and National Post founder, Conrad Black, call the media stupid, vile, corrupt, and worthy of hatred. Their next Christmas party at PostMedia is going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> Welcome back to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to everybody by Jeff Brown, James Baumhoff, Emily Newcomb, John Dennis, Deanna-Marie, Mike Vaughn, Mike Enns, and Jonathan. Bonjour, je m'appelle Jonathan, and I'm an urban planner in Montreal. I am a long time supporter of Canada Land because as a French Québécois, I find myself a bit isolated from the Anglo Canadian media sphere. Canada Land's many series and shows give me a variety of perspectives and insight in what's going on in our big country. Enfin, un bonjour spécial à Émilie Nicolas et à son émission Détour. Merci de te lancer dans cette aventure. So, Jan, while everybody was, I think, quite reasonably fixated on the US Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, our Supreme Court here in Canada issued an important ruling that has gone not totally overlooked, but largely overlooked. And that ruling was the Supreme Court of Canada upholding the so called Gameshi laws or Gameshi amendments. And these are expanded rape shield laws first introduced by then-Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould in 2017. And as you and listeners will remember, the reason why those laws were introduced was because this happened.
0: Gian Gomeshi is not guilty on all charges of sexual assault. And the women would be discredited, denounced by the judge as deceptive, manipulative, deliberately breaching their responsibility to tell the truth. Decouter was the second witness, and her credibility was arguably the most damaged by the end of her testimony. There's probably a witness somewhere in a criminal proceeding somewhere in the world who has been more thoroughly discredited than Lucy Ducouter, who is the second complainant in the Jean Gameschi sex trial. So there's probably someone like that somewhere, and I just don't know about it.
1: So Jan, that's a story that a lot of listeners are going to remember hearing from the media, a uh, story of a dramatic courtroom drama in which, like Lucy de Couture and and the other complainants went from being, I think, treated very positively in the press as heroes, as very brave women who were coming forward when the, when the police asked them to come forward after other women were accusing Gameshi of brutal uh, sexual assault and, and violence. These women went from being celebrated to being excoriated. Everyone in the country heard they were demolished on the stand by Gameshi's lawyer, Marie Hanen. They were excoriated by the judge in his ruling for not telling the truth. And then I I think they were demonized by many media commentators, including the late Christy Blatchford. So I think that that's where a lot of people left the story, because it was like the biggest story in Canada at the time. And it was the story of, of discredited witnesses, bad witnesses.
0: I felt so bad when that verdict came down. You're right. There was this huge support for the women. And then basically everybody shook their heads and said, oh, well, you know, obviously they were not credible. That was terrible that setback, sexual assault, complainants coming forward, it's already so hard to bring a complaint and that just wiped it. So this news is really, really good. Very important.
1: It is, but it's really interesting how the biggest story in Canada has a different ending than the one that everybody thinks it had. You know, the ending of the story is not about witnesses who are discredited It's interesting that we're calling this the Gameshi Amendment or the Gameshi Laws, or that's how it's been referred. Because like you could call it like Lucy's Law. Yeah. What the country saw, as told through the media, that they were ruined on the stage and they were dishonest, is not what I guess legislators saw. It's not what Jody Wilson-Raybould saw, and now it's not what the courts see. What they saw was like a failure of the justice system itself. So what these so-called Gameshi amendments entail is amendments to the criminal code, extending the rape shield law. So that if a person accused of sexual assault, their defense lawyer wants to bring forward, let's say records like texts that show that the alleged victim was in touch with the alleged perpetrator after the fact, they have to say, I wanna bring this evidence out at trial. And there's a pre-screening process where the court considers that. And if those records are considered to be an invasion of the accuser's dignity and privacy that doesn't actually have much value for determining the truth of what happened, then the court can say, no, you cannot admit those.
0: Yes, and and I, I agree that this ruling hasn't got nearly the attention of Roe v. Wade in the U.S., but this is so important because what it does is it slightly takes the finger off the scale to give the accused all the rights And the complainants, the alleged victims, had no rights. Before, there was a rape shield law which said you could not bring up the prior sexual history of the complainant in a court of law. And in Gomeshi's trial, what they did, and in other trials, is they used any social media accounts, any emails they sent, any photos, they used it against the complainants. But not only did they use it, they ambushed them. So the complainants had no right to know what Gomeshi's lawyer had. And so that's how these women were destroyed on the stand. If they had been in the normal pretrial process where they are shown what the other side has, they would have known. So, for instance, one of them said, no, I didn't contact him after the assault. Who knows why the person said this, but a lot of people feel like if they want to be a credible victim, they have to fit the stereotype, the myth that if you've been sexually assaulted, you never have contact again, you know, but that's not true. In the real world, a lot of people want to normalize what happened or the other person has power or who knows why, or they have, they share a kid in common, you know, but we have so many myths about sexual assault I think the justices blew up five myths in their ruling. One of the myths is a sexually active woman is more likely to have consented or to lie, right? This is this old myth about women who like sex. They're bad people. Mental health challenges also destroys your credibility that if you just consumed alcohol or took drugs, you're also not reliable. That if you didn't report it immediately, this is probably it didn't happen And that if you had any contact with the perpetrator, the alleged perpetrator, after the assault, then you're not a real victim. So this is why this Supreme Court ruling in Canada is is really important, because the whole atmosphere has changed because of social media. People normally just send texts and emails, you know, and you can't recover it. It's just really important that they included this and, and they won't let... The accused ambush the complainants with this.
1: This is an extension of rape shield laws. There was already rape shield law that made it difficult, not impossible, to bring accusers' sexual history as evidence against them.
0: It made it difficult to access a doctor's files on the, yeah. on the victim or a rape crisis center. So that was already protected. And the difference is, let's just use the actual example. Giongameshi had photos, videos, you know, somebody sent him, I think, a bathing suit picture. Another one sent him flowers afterwards. This is actually normal behavior for victims of sexual assault. We don't know this because we try to shove women into this stereotype of the only way you could be really raped is if someone clubbed you on the head and dragged you into a dark alley. This is not the majority of cases of sexual assault. Most of the time, the women know the perpetrator.
1: The specific things that women and other accusers have now that they didn't have before this law, and now that this law is constitutionally protected because the Supreme Court says it's constitutional, what would happen now if the Gameshi trial were to be held today is— Rather than ambush women on the stand after they've, you know, like Bill Blair said, hey, come forward, tell us your stories. You can trust us. We're the police. We're your friends. The women came forward and they just sort of told the story as they had remembered it uh, after many years. And then on the stand, Marie Hennan is like, you said you never contacted him. What about this? Now, if that trial were to happen today because of the Gameshi amendments, if Marie Hennan wants to introduce that as evidence, she has to then give... The accuser, there's a pre-screening process where she says, I want to be able to bring up these text messages. And not only does she have to give warning that that's gonna be entered into evidence, but now accusers can actually have lawyers. And a lot of people don't realize this, but none of those women had lawyers that had any standing. Absolutely. It's true that they did not have lawyers at trial. They did not have lawyers who were recognized by the court or who could advocate them or would be recognized by the court. They had lawyers giving them advice And in fact, that ended up hurting them because two of the accusers had the same lawyer and Marie Henin weaponized that and said, isn't it true that you both have the same lawyer? And I think the implication was that there's something dirty about that, that they're colluding, they're part of the campaign. So the fact that they had any representation, even though it wasn't officially recognized, was actually something that hurt them in that trial as opposed to help them. Absolutely. So now the accuser can say, that is an affront to my dignity. It has nothing to do with the alleged assault. It doesn't prove anything that I came back afterwards and was nice to him. And it's an invasion of my privacy. And the court can say, no, actually, it does actually matter. Or they could say, no, that is a, an affront to your dignity. And I think that it was absolutely devastating to these women's dignity to show bikini pictures and whatnot. The funny thing is that as many people in Canada concluded that Christy Blashford was right, these witnesses are horrible liars or whatever, they also felt that they probably were assaulted by Gameshi. Like those yes. concurrent positions were were held, which was weird. And
0: that's what's so terrible about it. I think people accepted that they were credible in that he did assault them, but then they said, oh, but you lied, so you're going to get punished by, we're not going to convict him. The, the new ruling by the Supreme Court says that any evidence that the defense has has to be brought out in a private hearing, not in court, in a private hearing, mm-hmm. and the victims have the right to attend this with lawyers. Yes, you're right. The victims in the Gomeshi case were just there as, you know, victims. They had no rights and they had no lawyers. And so this is just beginning to address the huge imbalance. I mean, we really believe in a democracy of the right of an accused to a fair trial. That is very important. But in the case of sexual assault, it is so out of whack. It is laughable. And that's why the conviction rate is so low. I mean, essentially, you can... You can sexually assault someone in this country and get away with it. Your chances of getting convicted are almost nil.
1: Yeah, that's what Elizabeth Sheehy wrote in The Globe and Mail. This whole idea that everything's changed since Me Too. Sexual assault, Sheehy writes, is still a crime that is like almost without consequence to commit. That's that's still the the case.
0: Yeah, and it's the only crime. It's the only crime that we've allowed, which shows you how misogynist— the laws have been. It's basically the only crime. You can't do that with bank robbery. You can't do that, you know, with uh, killing someone with your car. But yeah, you can sexually assault and you can get away with it. And now this is just beginning to redress this imbalance in the court.
1: It is gratifying because to see what happened in that trial. And again, like it really does feel like it's a direct result of that trial. If you read the ruling, It's not simply about the affront to the dignity. It's about setting traps. Yes. Why is that beneficial to the search for the truth? I guess in in what we saw play out and in many trials, it's like, well, you gave one version of of events and now these texts prove that what happened is a little bit different. Obviously, you're a liar and we can't trust anything you say. Now, one of the myths, uh, you know, in addition to the, you know, whatever somebody's sexual history doesn't make them more or less credible in terms of an uh, assault allegation. We now know that that is very common with abuse for people to come back. And it's also common for people to misremember things. And I'll read from the ruling here. There is surely nothing wrong in a witness refreshing his or her memory from a previous statement or document. The witness may even change his or her evidence as a result. This may rob the cross-examiner of a substantial advantage, but fairness to the witness may require that a trap not be laid. And the ruling goes on to say, it's not about letting somebody change their story, It's about somebody has a memory of something that happened in an intimate moment and that was traumatic and then you say, but there's more to it or it's a little bit different than what you remember. And then they have an opportunity to say, you know what, you're right. I I blocked out the fact that I sent that. And it's not necessarily the case that they're caught in a lie. Exactly. If the point is to actually figure out what happened and most people feel like what happened is this guy got away with assault, then this is actually a better system for arriving at the truth. It's not just about giving more power to accusers. It's about like we're trying to get to the truth here.
0: The justices also said that, quote, providing advance notice to complainants that they may be confronted with highly private information is likely, and here's the important part, is likely to enhance their ability to participate honestly in cross-examination. And if you want to get to the truth, if you want people to be honest, you cannot blindside them like this. Because I agree, trauma does affect your memory, and so do the stereotypes. I don't know, maybe they were under pressure. I mean, it's embarrassing to say that you sent somebody flowers after they did this to you, but it's totally conforming with the behavior of victims after a sexual assault. And we have just made so many myths around this.
1: Yeah. To watch that play out as it did, as I did, and I, I shouldn't make assumptions, you know, I, I have a role in the story that should be disclosed here and in, in reporting the Gameshi story.
0: That's right, I forgot you broke the story. I so totally forgot.
1: I knew that this was a methodical serial predator. He repeatedly manipulated his victims into post incident contact and would remind them I have these photos of you, I have these solicitations of you, I have evidence that you wanted this. That was his MO. And he would often, especially if there was a situation where somebody was parting with him with with allegations or on bad terms, he would work overtime to make sure that there was friendly contact Mm -hmm. afterwards. And then he would keep records Mm -hmm. for years and years. So watching those women get whacked with that on the stand and then excoriated by the judge, excoriated by Christy Blatchford, excoriated. And for that to be the story, I hope they feel, I hope that Linda and Lucy feel proud of what they did in the long run and, and at, a, at a great personal cost. Like this should not be called
0: the Gameshi law. This is Lucy and Linda's law. They took one for the team and all women should thank them. All victims. I shouldn't say only women, all, all victims of sexual assault yeah should thank them. It's sad, but it's, it's also very good news. I, I'm very sad for them, but I'm also very happy for this Supreme court. And I'm really happy that I live in Canada, <laughs> not the U S. <laughs>
1: Sometimes I agree. And and I should say that there are right now criminal defense lawyers listening to this who have been complaining for years about this law that Jody Wilson-Raybould introduced, that, that it's not fair, that it's not constitutional, that it's unfair, it's going to lead to wrongful convictions. Matthew Gourlay is in the Globe and Mail with a, another author writing about how terrible this is. They, they've been complaining for years about this. And that's a debate that lawyers can have in a more informed way than I can. But now the debate is settled. The Supreme Court has weighed in. I don't
0: think she would have won. With this law, she would not have won because that's what destroyed the credibility—the quote-unquote credibility of the complainants. She wasn't wrong. Marie hadn't used what she could use, and she did an amazing job getting Gomeshi off because everybody knew, right? You just knew. Yeah. And she got him off, but in future she won't be able to. So no wonder all the defense lawyers are complaining. Well, that's how it happens, and thank goodness. The Supreme Court. It was only 6 3. It wasn't unanimous. So, you know, we're lucky.
1: This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Jan, let's... Julie, note some stuff. Do you have something you want to tell people about?
0: Yes. I want to talk about Watergate. Which kind of gossip do you want? Pulitzer Prize gossip, or do you want my personal encounter with Woodward at the Smithsonian?
1: Oh, the personal encounter for sure. Let's hear the Woodward gossip.
0: So there's a Watergate exhibit at the Smithsonian Portrait Gallery. It's mainly original art covers of Time magazine. They had so many covers of Watergate and big selling magazines, most they ever sold. So I'm at the exhibit and I'm trying to concentrate and read the little, you know, cards. And there's this guy at the beginning of the exhibit. I'm already halfway through it. And he's so loud. He's talking. He's almost shouting. He goes from cover to cover and he wants to give the whole world his opinion. And I'm glaring at him and he's really annoying me. And at one point, I decided I'm going to stomp over and tell him off and tell him he's not the. Only. So I would stomp over <laughs> and at a distance of 10 feet, I go, oh, my God, <laughs> it's Woodward. And so then I immediately become a groupie. I just become a groupie and I just follow him. He's got like six people following him around this. So and I think I and I did talk to him afterwards. <laughs> so that's my Woodward story.
1: You know, Michael Enray told me that that those two ruined journalism because everybody wanted to be a superstar like Woodward and Bernstein after that movie.
0: Yeah. So do I have time to tell you the other gossip about the Woodward-Bernstein Pulitzer Prize?
1: I think you have to now.
0: So I'm reading this amazing book. I finished it, 793 pages. It's called Watergate, A New History by Garrett Graff, and it's just come out. And it's it's really interesting to read it as I'm watching the January 6th hearings. But here's the gossip on the Pulitzers. Everyone knows they won the Pulitzer Prize, right? Sure. Woodward and Bernstein. That's why we all wanted to go into journalism. It turns out that they weren't going to win it, that the Washington Post was overlooked. So the big machine at the Washington Post swung into action and they started horse trading with the Pulitzer Prize committee. And they said, no, 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 we have to get this. Uh, and we want the the gold medal for public service, which is interestingly, not individual reporters. It went to the newspaper. But as a result of the horse trading, two Washington Post reporters lost their Pulitzers. Somebody was supposed to get it for foreign reporting, and somebody was supposed to get it for Spot News. And of course, they didn't get it. So Woodward and Burns didn't get it. But they're mad because they didn't get it as individual reporters. The newspaper got it, including a cartoonist and an editorial writer. So I just thought that was that was really interesting, but only journalists would care. They had to wheel and deal to get that Pulitzer Prize, even though it was really good work, right? But they weren't going to get it that year.
1: I have endless appetite for, like, award gossip. Yeah, We got to do a thing on...
0: Yeah, you should, yeah.
1: I mean, we want media awards, and but, like, the actual backstory behind what happens, I didn't know that the, the Pulitzers were manipulatable. No, I didn't
0: either. I was, like... Shocked,
1: You know, The Wire got into this a little bit, but the way in which editors, like, start out with an intention of, like, this is going to be our big mm-hmm, award play mm-hmm. for this year. And, sto- like, stories are born as award bait. Yes, yes, yes. It's no different than, like, what the Weinstein's yes, did with yes. the Oscars.
0: And they lobby for it. I didn't realize you could lobby for it. Yeah. I- and I didn't realize you horse-traded the answers
1: <laughs> No, that's news to me. That is good gossip. Duly noted. I want to duly note a really fascinating and beautifully written obituary for historian Irving Abella that ran in the Globe and Mail by Alan Freeman. I knew a little bit about Abella as the author of None Is Too Many. And, you know, Canadian Jewish kids are taught in school about the shameful history of Canada turning away the St. Louis, a boat that was containing, in 1939, about 1,000 European Jews who were escaping the Nazis. And Canada said, None Is Too Many. And the ship was sent back And hundreds of those Jews died at the hands of the Nazis. So I knew that Abella was the author of that, the co-author of that, but there's a lot more about him and a lot more about that, that I read. And maybe I'll just read a little bit here. This is from Alan Freeman's obituary of Irving Abella. Canada had one of the most exclusionary policies of any country where Jews sought refuge in the Nazi period. The U S accepted 200,000 Jews between 1933 and 45, Britain, 70,000. Canada let in only 5,000 Jews. Frederick Blair, the director of immigration, saw it as his job to keep Jewish refugees out of the country. He wrote, pressure on the part of the Jewish people to get into Canada has never been greater than it is now. And I'm glad to be able to add that it has never been so well controlled. Fewer Jews are coming into Canada than ever before. Mr. Blair's bureaucratic anti-Semitism was supported by Vincent Massey. We know about Massey commissions and Massey lectures. Vincent Massey, then a leading diplomat and future governor general, who thought Jews were likely communists who would steal jobs from native-born Canadians. (sighs) And of course, Prime Minister Mackenzie King saw no electoral advantage to letting more Jews into the country and believed that it could hurt the Liberal Party's standing, particularly in Quebec. And that history was really interesting to read in the obituary. But what was especially interesting was the application of that, not simply as documenting Canada's anti-Semitism, but the politics of when Irving Abella published None Is Too Many, it was purposed towards the government of the day as a precautionary book. Like, this is how history is judging these Canadian politicians from the past. There are now Vietnamese refugees.
0: I didn't know that. That's really interesting.
1: Isn't it? Don't let this be you in somebody's book in the future. And... From something that I think is shameful about Canada, there's something that is really inspiring about one group of racially persecuted refugees and immigrants using their experience to improve things for another generation of Vietnamese.
0: Mm, Very interesting.
1: And shaming the government into not repeating that mistake. So this is the legacy of Irving Abella. I thought it was fascinating to read about in the Globe. Yeah,
0: I didn't didn't know that about Massey. That's terrible, duly noted. (laughs)
1: Here is Jan Wong, an article written by Rob Roberts, the editor in chief of the national post disagree. All you like with us, but engage us, don't abuse us. And Rob Roberts goes on to write, and this is something that we've talked about many times. And I think is very real that this is a hard time for journalists. There's a lot of harassment and abuse that just for doing the job of journalism, you got to encounter. And that even goes for the national posts reporters, from a conservative newspaper, they still face a lot of, a lot of attacks. And Rob Roberts writes, these are hard times for almost everyone, something we try to capture in our journalism, but let me condemn in the strongest possible terms, the people who think that that gives them permission to do away with decency, I'm writing today to tell those people to stop. We stand with our journalists, disagree all you like, but don't abuse us.
0: Well, that'll do a lot of good. I think that'll really be helpful.
1: Jan, I want to play you a little bit of audio of Rex Murphy delivering a speech at a freedom gala last month.
0: The news media of this country and North America is not only mendacious, it is
1: incompetent,
0: it is compromised, it is corrupt, it is illiterate, it is stupid, and it is (laughs) vile.
1: That's a lot of words for bad. Yeah. I want to now play you. National Post founder and columnist Conrad Black delivering a speech presented by the Democracy Fund on the history of civil liberties in Canada. This was posted also last month.
0: Almost all distinction between reporting and comment has been abandoned in our media, and what passes for news more often is simply the leftist philistinism of unrigorous reporters peddling faddish bile free of any pretense of impartiality. Usually it isn't very well written or spoken either. As objective tests of our secondary school graduates reveal steadily lower standards of achievement, so public opinion polling indicates that a steadily smaller percentage of the public trusts the media. Our media are so chronically mediocre and frequently dishonest that what should be in a rich and free country like this The civil right to a reasonably high standard of media information is a general denial of that right. Lord
1: Black of Cross Harbor went on to say, the public is right to distrust and even despise the media. I hope they all work it out. Rob Roberts writing this letter to (laughs) Conrad Black and Rex Murphy in public. Please stop abusing us. (laughs) No, I, I don't even know where to begin with the contradictions and hypocrisies at play here. What, what, like, What's what's your reaction to this?
0: Well, first of all, is he still Lord Black? I thought he got stripped of his title. But anyway, he's complaining about the distinction between reporting and commentary. I don't think he understands it himself. And calling journalists all these names, I don't know. They, they sound like they work for a thesaurus. Tell us what they really think. I guess they don't like reporters, but they... They work as reporters. It's so weird. And seeing how Rex Murphy has evolved is weird, if you want to call it evolve. I think he went backwards. And then the National Post doesn't want anyone to treat their journalists badly. When these two guys are trashing journalists, I guess it's ultimate hypocrisy, right?
1: In so many ways. We always just throw around the media, this, the media, that. Like, who is the media? I guess it's the cumulative, like, everybody who works in media altogether. Like, no one is the media. But if anyone is the media, Conrad Black is the media. Rex Murphy is the media.
0: Yeah, they're the media. You know, the National Post is the media that publishes Rex Murphy's column. So what are they complaining about? They have a platform. What are they complaining about?
1: And then... The lack of uh,
0: self-reflection
1: or like introspection or just like, okay, no, they don't see themselves as that somehow. They see themselves as other, but they are working. I know it's kind of an open secret that nobody really edits them, and they just basically treat the pages of the National Post as like their Twitter account or their personal blog. But they do have colleagues who are like... Laying out these articles, formatting yeah. them, publishing yeah. them. And you're saying it's right to hate those people. It's okay to, you should hate those people. That's right. And, and, and it's not even like I'm drawing that back to Conrad Black's own colleagues. He makes that, that connection. He says, I should know what I'm talking about. When I, when I excoriate the media, I've employed enough of them myself. He, he makes the connection that he's talking about posties And you got to wonder, like, what does the union think about this? To have the, the star columnists, whatever these, like, guys, they're crusty, they're old, they're out of touch, but their names trend on Twitter whenever they write another piece. They're like the last.
0: Yeah, but the union doesn't say anything, right? The union is afraid. Well, it would have been really great if there's Rob Roberts. I love people with these reversible names. It would have been really good if he had called out Rex Murphy and Conrad Black. He would have had some credibility. Right now, I'm just you know, big eye roll. Yeah. It's not going to make any difference, but if he wanted to get attention, he should have called out Rex Murphy.
1: Well, he was explicit in his piece about who he was talking about. Like, I'm being cheeky and saying it sounds like he's describing Conrad Black and Rex Murphy. In fact, of course, who he cites, Rob Roberts is a bunch of online commentators who are making death threats or saying vile things. But there is nothing incompatible in that the kind of vile comments that Rob Roberts cites from Post Readers. It's completely compatible with what Rex Murphy and Connor Black are saying exactly and it's coming from the same political point of view like it's they're on the same team against everybody else I suppose in the National Post to this question of what the Union has to say about this well our news editor Jonathan Goldsby tweeted the clip of Rex Murphy and a few days later a representative of the National Post Union got in touch with him to say can we see the video of the full speech oh. because they were considering putting out a statement about these comments, Uh and they wanted to see the full context of the remarks. So he shared the live stream of the full event. He asked them, you know, if, if you do a statement, can you let me know? And? And we haven't heard anything more about it since.
0: Ha! What do you know? Am I surprised? Are you surprised? I'm not. No. I'm not surprised. No. Nobody has any courage. Rob Roberts should have posted a link to... Rex Murphy, it would have, he would have had some courage. It's not courageous in your own newspaper to say online harassment, blah, blah, blah. Please don't do it. Go after your own powerful people that are doing this.
1: In fact, it's kind of weird to, to read this open letter from an editor-in-chief, like kind of just directed to the public at large. That's like, hey, we're doing our best. Don't be mean to us. Don't abuse us. Like in any context, it's kind of weird, like, and I guess we're supposed to self-select. Well, he's not, he's not talking about me. He's talking about those other people who, you know, yes, I, I talk a lot of shit about national post reporters, but I'm not abusive. He's talking about those horrible trolls, not me. Uh, That's always kind of a weird thing to kind of like criticize your own readership or criticize the public, but to do so in, in, and having your blind spot, your biggest celebrity columnists. Can I ask you about the whole celebrity columnist thing? Cause like you were there during the newspaper wars when. Yeah building up these columnists and and, and even having columnists slash reporters, as you were, mm-hmm. was like, let's build personalities and let's build subscription and readership based on readers' connections with these personalities. And, and there was a time when it wasn't just Conrad Black and Rex Murphy, but Margaret Wente could have everybody buzzing and Leah McLaren could have everybody talking about what she just wrote. And you could write something that would have everybody talking and Christy Blatchford. And it just seems like those roles have been phased out and no one's bothered to replace them or to try to cultivate, maybe for better, maybe it's a good thing.
0: Yeah, I don't know.
1: These are the guys we have left, you know?
0: Yeah, the old crusty guys. I don't know why, but I just feel the post editor, Rob Roberts, shouldn't have even bothered. If you're going to put out pablum and anodyne commentary and you're not going to name anybody, then don't bother. You just look weak. if You're not going to take your own people to a task. I didn't even know Conrad Black and Rex Murphy are like still showing up in places. I guess I'm out of it. Like, really? What are they doing? Why don't they just retire and go home and shut up?
1: The call, as we say on the internet, was coming from inside the house. (laughs) Jen Wong, thank you for joining me again for Shortcuts.
0: It's so much fun.
1: It's always fun when you're on the show. And if anybody out there likes this show and wants to support all the work we do here, click the link on the show notes or go to CanadaLand.com slash join. We rely on your support. We are on Twitter at canadaland. I can be emailed at Jesse at Canada I read everything that you send Jen Wong. Where can people find you?
0: I am at writer Wong on Twitter. Get it? It's
1: a pun. Right or wrong? Yeah. Good. I got it. I got it because you explained it to me last time. <laughs> This episode is produced by Aviva Lessard with additional production by Caleb Thompson and Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. Once again, we are a people-powered media organization. We're here if people decide that we should be here. So click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com join to become a member and support our work. I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land. And this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get For just $2 a month, that is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers.